you know, when I'm teaching finite element analysis to a group of students in America or um, all over the world, you know, I stress this really that I, I'm just an experienced engineer. I'm going to try and tell you what not to do. Well, that's that. a good start. Tell them, tell them what not to do. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. There's right. only three things that we've got to do well. You know, the number of people that can make things is quite big. The number of people that can run a marathon is quite big. The number of people with lots of good ideas is quite big. But those three groups together, where they overlap, there's not many people in there. <laughs> in other words, they can make something well, they can design something well, and they can run with the damn thing as well. That is a small number of people, and I like to think I'm in there. Welcome back to the SOLIDWORKS Born to Design podcast, a collection of inspiring stories about those who create, build, invent, and engineer new ideas into actual new products. And by the way, they all use SOLIDWORKS. I'm your host, Cliff Medling, and I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Born to Design podcast. Simulation expert shares his secrets. Today, I'm talking with Bob Johnson, an analyst with over 40 years of experience with design analysis and is an expert on all things related to simulation. Bob is also a key member of the Simulia community. Bob shares his advice, knowledge, and years of experience on the advancements to analysis software over the years. So let's jump right into the interview. How did this all get started? How did you get interested in finite element analysis and uh, simulation? Yeah, I mean, I mean, did you start with yeah. design and... No, I, I was doing a mechanical engineering apprenticeship for a boiler company. They made domestic boilers. Lovely British company, lovely English setup down in Warwick. And they were designing stuff that usually had, they had great problems in designing a new heat exchanger because it wouldn't pick up the heat properly. It was too noisy. It would break, all these different problems. And I insisted to them because... I knew something from my BSc, my Bachelor of Science degree. I had an idea that simulation would help them design these heat exchanges. So I said to my bosses, while I was still an apprentice, look, send me on an MSc, a Master of Science course, and I'll study all the simulation techniques and I'll come back and we'll start to simulate these heat exchanges. They said, no, you know, we can, we've been doing it this way for... 50 years we, we you know course, we can't yeah. yeah exactly we will persist in our tried and trusted methods so no you know we're not going to sponsor you so i thought well look, this is my passion that i want to be into simulation i want to look ahead i want to you know look into the future with a computer model and so I left of my own fruition. My mom and dad paid for my mortgage and I left and did an MSc on my own, studied finite element, boundary element, all these lovely things, worked for some very clever people back uh, in Cranfield Institute, and then went into stress analysis from then. So I've not been in consultancy environment ever since then, which was 81, 82 or whatever that was. Wow, wow. Um, yeah, and you're a one-man show, right? Yeah. Well, I am now. Um, only since 2013 have I been a one-man show. Okay. Um, before 2013, we were a two-man show, but my partner, he retired, and uh, I've been one man since, which is can be troublesome. I'm always very keen to go to the user group meetings that Samulia hold to share opinions with people. I get people in industry sometimes to oversee my work 
the other thing I'm always doing as well, Cliff, is that I'm always doing test models, you know, what if models, hand calculations, sense checks, all these things get done as well. Unlike Einstein said, 40 years of experience, experience counts. It really does count. You know, you can come out of college pretty fresh, but experience plus that college background is wonderful. Yeah, really wonderful. Oh, I, I agree. Well, so. I think if you, I like to keep a very big, a wide outlook on all, 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 you know, on what I do. That, but I could become an expert if I just went vanishingly small on what I was interested in. You know, that maybe I could, but no way. I try and. You know, when I'm teaching final element analysis to a group of students in America or Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Chennai, um, all over the world, you know, I stress this really that I, I'm just an experienced engineer. I'm going to try and tell you not what not to do. <laughs> you know, oh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> no, that's oh, a that. good start. Tell them, tell them what not to do. Exactly. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. There's only three things that we've got to do well. And Really, of those three things, constraints are the thing that people get wrong. Fantastically common to see things over-constrained. The results look perfectly understandable. And very much from a CAD perspective, a computer-aided uh, you know, design point of view, people have been taught that way for 20, 30 years now, that you know, here's a component hold it at this end, load it at this end, off you go. But, you know, that is, that distills really everything down to it like a, a cantilever beam. And, you know, I've seen books from different sources quoting wrong way of doing things, over-constraining stuff, and it's written up in a book. You know, it's dreadful. <laughs> so that's been my hobby horse, Cliff, for the last... 20, 30 years, really, because I started over-constraining stuff. When I started, everybody does. Right. Well, why, why do you think they over-constrain? They just want to make sure they're getting it right? Well, it's the, the software is set up that way. They say, here's a face. You can constrain it in the X, the Y, or the Z, or all three translational freedoms. And so you can click a face and constrain it in the X, Y, and Z, which also constrains the three rotations as well. But that cannot be done if you make a test, if you, in a test house of a physical model, you cannot get the face of a component of a beam or something. You cannot physically constrain it in the X, the Y, and the Z. You know, you can build it into a wall if you want, and okay, within a foot depth, you've hardly got any movement, but, Displacements are tiny. You know, we're talking about 10 micron or the thickness of my hair or something. A hair on my head is two micron. Well, in a finite element sense, two micron is matters. You know, that yeah. little bit of movement matters. Yeah, and what yeah. we tend to do in finite element analysis is say, well, it's only moving 10 micron. Let's just hold it. Let's just assume not. But these really sinister things, effects that we get from holding big patches of nodes means that this thing is is stiffer than we think it is or stronger than we think it is and that's pretty dangerous the methods that we use in industry therefore what we talk about is a minimum constraint is 
in a three-dimensional structure with no symmetry, uh, with maybe a set of balanced loads. Uh, we could go into that in other somewhere else or something. But you know, uh, say this laptop in front of me, it's got its weight force downwards. It's got contact, at, or we could simulate the. You know, we could work out what the pressures are in it under each foot. So you could imagine this laptop was just a free body in space. The weight downwards was one force. There are then up thrusts at each rubber foot at each corner. We've been able to work out those. So you can imagine this laptop just floating in space under the influence of all the loads. How do we constrain that now? And what we do is a three, two, one minimum constraint. Let me give you another example because it's a beauty. Uh, when I taught in Singapore, I think it was, there was a man clearly annoyed that this chap from England was speaking to hundreds of people and not him. <laughs> and he said about an analysis he was running that was a basically, think of a paddle boat, think of a a boat with a couple of oars on or something like that. So this brings up the constraint issue fantastically well. Sort of the active loads, if you like, are the weight of the boat and the weight of the people in it. You know, that's a downward load, obviously. And that will force the hull of the boat to displace some water. And Archimedes tells us that as soon as, you know, we displace the right amount of water, we get an up thrust that's equal and opposite to the down thrust. So really a boat, think of a boat hovering there in space. You've got the downward load of the weights. You've got pressure acting on the hull. How do we constrain it? Well, this chap in um, Singapore, I'm sure it was, he'd got constraints down the, where the rudder goes in, that, that keel bar or whatever that bar is called at the back. He's got constraints going along the back there. Is that constrained in reality? No but he'd constrained it there. It always got singular stresses. It's all got problems there. The way to solve that is a three, two, one minimum constraint. It's, a, it's an industry trick that has been around for 40 or 50 years, probably more, but it's not very well known. It is the most elegant thing in the world. It's the only way to do a boat or an aeroplane or a spaceship, or you could argue your laptop, because your laptop is really just floating on the desk. It's making contact with the desk. It's not glued down. It's not welded right. down. It might as well be floating there. If you put pressures where the table touches the feet of your laptop, we could put pressure there instead, and your laptop is a free body. Now constrain it. So maybe this is going to be difficult stuff to get across without pictures, Cliff, but it fantastically important to get constraints correct so um what's your advice for others who are maybe getting started with simulation or yeah. maybe maybe they're designers and haven't really touched on simulation like like yeah. you were like you were many yeah. 40 years ago right <laughs> well what would be your yeah. uh, advice for them my advice straight away cliff would be the look forget about making a perfect finite element model it doesn't exist what you're trying to do is make a, a model that's adequate and representative. It's good enough. So I would make a fairly simplified first try, and I would never rely on one finite element model. 
I would have two or three running. You know, I would do it with shells. I would do it with solids. I would constrain it one way. I would constrain it another way or something. I think as a beginner, you should be very skeptical about one analysis telling you that the component is going to be good. It's fine. I would forget that. I would always, I would do some hand calculations. I would do a sense check. I would, you know, if you imagine a graph with that one point on a graph, you know, it's very difficult to know how good you are. But as soon as you put some hand calculations around it, you put another test model around it. Um, the other thing I see people missing, which is criminal, really, is that they've got a component that is more or less axisymmetric. So it's a paintball gun cylinder. The only non-axisymmetric feature is the thread has helix to it. So the thread actually uh, goes in an axial direction as well as round, you know. So really, I see a detailed three-dimensional analysis of a, a structure which should have been done with 2D. So if you're starting out in this game, do something simple first, two-dimensional first, an axisymmetric model. Abacus and SolidWorks have got it set up wonderfully. But it's a two-dimensional problem. It cuts the complexity down by an order of magnitude. It runs quickly. You get wonderfully fine results. If you were after the fatigue issues about a thread or something like that, the thread can go in there. The radius of the bottom of the thread can go in there. You can put preload in. You can have contact in there, everything. I do not want to see it done with three-dimensional analysis first. I see that all the time. Some of your competitors presume you might have to cut this out, Phil, but Nastran, <laughs> to this day, they don't give you a two-dimensional axisymmetric element. They want you to make a three-dimensional sector model, five degrees, two degrees, 10 degrees, whatever it is, and you make your axisymmetric model from a sector model with two lots of symmetry on. Can they please wake up? And <laughs> well, presumably you don't want them to wake up. Let them make it work. With people. Yeah. You know. That's funny. But, yeah, it's but, the oh, it's the best, the most accurate, lovely thing. Two-dimensional axisymmetric. Plain stress is okay, not brilliant. Plain strain. Engineering plane strain or mathematical plane strain, yes, it's there, but not brilliant. Axisymmetric is spot on, absolutely wonderful. That's um, great. That's great. Good advice. Good advice. Well, um, I, I want to make sure we touch on, you know, what you do in your uh, spare time. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I think it's fascinating. You're running marathons and you make these crazy outfits for when you run, which your expertise in simulation has to help out right because if you're running and you don't want this uh, well, costume to fall apart by the end of the no, race right? yes yeah, yeah well you know the number of people that can make things is quite big the number of people that can run a marathon is quite big the number of people with lots of good ideas is quite big but those three groups together where they overlap there's not many people in there <laughs> in other words they can make something well they can design something well and they can run with the damn thing as well then that is a small number of people and i like to think i'm in there um, right, I've got right. a, 
I've got a world record or two, I think. No, they probably both lapsed or something. Uh, Guinness world record for different things. But if I can say to the world, look, I'm 64, but I can still run around. I've still got the enthusiasm of a 20-year-old, then that's brilliant. That if And my grandchildren, you know, they open the Guinness world record and show a picture of granddad in there. It's, it's really lovely. <laughs> I, I'm still running to this day. I'm captain of my local running club, uh, the men's captain. For the last two years, I've been second in the Ben Nevis race, which the biggest mountain in the whole of the UK is one called Ben Nevis. And there's a run with five or 600 people where we run from a town called Fort William up to the top of a mountain, hand in a little token type thing that we've had around our necks. We hand in that token and run back down again. Desperately hard race. But I've been second for the last two runnings of that. And this time I'm trying to get fit. So if you call back Cliff and I'm not here, it's because I'm out running in the sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. No, it's 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 excellent. Yeah, well, you, you have to stay fit. Um, in the old Hibberts, uh, David Hibbert, wasn't it? Hibbert, Carlson and Sorensen in those days, David Hibbert was a wonderful engineer, wonderful engineer. And you knew that the whole thing was underpinned by people like that. You knew that you were going to be successful because in a consultancy environment, it's a tough gig because, you know, the problem started in January. They've spent loads of money in March, until March doing it all wrong. Then they want results by April. So they phone you very late in the day in, say, March. Bob, we're in trouble. We need you to get some results by, you know, 10th of April. You know, and all. Oh. So it's a very tough environment that you're solving generally speaking you're solving problems that other people can't solve or they've had problems with and this right, is right. where i try and use my brain some um the company it's an american company i think it's um uh, fmc but i visited houston did work for them and they'd got this problem that was so difficult and i said well look you're trying to solve the preloading procedure and I'm not interested in how the preloading goes onto this thing. I'm just going to jump to the end of the preloading procedure. And it saved a months and months of work. Just a big overall view of it. I'm not bothered about how you preload it. Just let me give you the preloaded state. Because that's where all the stress is. I don't care how you get there. And it's very, very true that we get caught up in some of the tiny details and that's why a, a consultant like me can sometimes save a hell of a lot of money i'm because sure because we're very experienced and we know the tricks we know right. all the truth a lot of <laughs> tricks but i'm still teaching myself tricks two years ago we discovered that i've basically got something wrong we're we're putting some load onto something and in order to simulate the angulation of that load we've not developed that loading angulation in abacus we've just jumped to it and of course if you jump to it you're missing out the frictional effects of what you've got in reality is if you gradually move from a straight pull to an angled pull while the load is still on those frictional effects will put bending into this thing and of course i've 
that's something I kicked myself for a week over that. But we, I do breakout calculations now. I do all this stuff now. So I'm still learning. That's great. It's, it's really good to be still learning. And like you said, with your gym work, keeps you fresh, keeps your mind fresh. I'm the same with my running and taking dogs out and stuff. I solve problems better running up a mountain than ever I do sat at a desk <laughs> staring at it. <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, Cliff, I'm 64, so... Yeah. You know, if I can get my 60 odd, uh, 40 years of experience, if I can get those 40 years into the youngsters and and maintain the good name and reputation of finite element, then, you know, that's good because that's good know, for you. OK. Oh, it's good for the it's good for the world. We're, you know, we're vaguely green, aren't we, that we can simulate something before we make it and not cut material until we're pretty positive. And uh, yeah, I, I think we're in a we're in a lovely part of industry. I start just a brief history of you know where I've come from. Then really is that in about 1980, I guess 79, 80, I joined a consultancy doing finite element models back then. But we were making complex 20 noded brick models of complex geometry you know so it, it would take me six weeks to make the mesh very difficult meshing because the customers most people wouldn't accept tet elements in those days so we would make a 20 noded brick mesh and then it would be sent off to the cray supercomputer and abacus would run on that computer and i'd get the results back and i would bill the customer and everybody would be happy because they were lovely generally speaking lovely results from a 20 noded brick is a wonderful piece of kit so those early days were linear but as i've gone through the last 40 years then the whole thing has switched over to non-linear i'm now making pretty well mostly tetrahedral meshes 10 noted tet we don't bother with the modified tet in abacus we just use the um I, i'm not sure i think that's the that's your recommendation now you guys use the standard uh, 10 noted tet lots of contact the thing i've just built uh, cliff had 25 different bodies in it all connected together or tied together bits and pieces were threaded together finite sliding nl jom switched on plasticity asme 8 materials sort of smooth curved materials i try and instead of elastic perfectly plastic or something it might be conservative but I think numerically it's a, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit more tricky. You know, right. you're saying to Abacus, look, it's very stiff in its elastic range. As soon as it yields, bush, you can't take any more load than that. So I tend to use those ASME eight curves from um, Appendix C or whatever it is. It, it's just like a smooth curve. It just, um, just helps. I think we don't have. Um, I've ne I've tried it, but I don't, you know, so my stuff is highly nonlinear nowadays, lots of contact, lots of preload, finite sliding, but I don't have damage, generally speaking, don't have damage switched on. So I don't have damage initiation. I don't have damage evolution. Don't have anything like that. Finite element, for me, the strength of it is, okay, I do lots of hand calculations. I always check my work. I do lots of equilibrium stuff. I do lots of statics. I'd lot free body diagrams i do all that good stuff but the thing about finite element that makes it special is that we can 
retain all the complexity of a part and really make a good analysis that's very, very accurate, you know, within. I've made stuff for the oil and gas industry whereby they've tested a highly complex component. They bent it to failure. And I've been within 95% of what they said. You know, okay, it's a big analysis. It's wow. finite sliding. It's it's uh, plasticity. It's contact. It's, it's all those things. Um, but, yes, done correctly, we can be very, very close to reality. The... What I try and do in in really my uh, situation here is that, okay, I know that the equation of motion has the acceleration effects, you know, uh, inertia effects, velocity effects, damping effects. But, you know, as long as I can keep things simple and I can see that this is genuinely slowly loaded, then, you know, the equation of motion becomes quite simply a matter of a of a really good stiffness matrix, a global stiffness matrix of the whole thing, which is your mesh, some sensible material properties, those two things together give a stiffness to your finite element model. Then you want some constraints, uh, i.e. we've got a load of, we've got many, many displacements everywhere that are unknown, but somewhere we're going to have to constrain things. That is, for me, the artistry of finite element analysis, this idea of constraining things. Um, I'll come back to it later. So on the one side of the equation of motion, you've got this idea of a stiffness matrix multiplied by a column of own unknown displacements. On the other side, you've just got some um, a column of uh, applied forces or, or body forces. You know. So those two things in a static analysis are equal to each other. And all we have to do is three things well, a good mesh, some sensible material properties, some applied loading, and then it comes down to the nitty gritty for me. And so important for everybody is the way that we constrain our model. When I've gone to conferences for the last 30 odd years, I people present their work over constrained, you know, as soon as something is over-constrained, that says, well, the stresses won't be as high as you think they are then. You've, you know, your constraints, your method of support is helping this component carry the load. You are making a mistake. No, no software system in the world will report to you that you're over-constrained. Um, but like this laptop in front of me, instead of it just sitting on the table in front of me, it's if I glue that down to the table, that is a different structure. And that's what people are routinely doing on a daily basis, gluing stuff together, welding this down, welding that down. And it's all over constrained. So we must be very careful there. So I see that I'm always careful to let the component or assembly breathe as much as it wants to, just in like in reality. So over-constraint is very popular. And the when, I, when I'm teaching any students or something, I try and show them this idea of over-constraint by asking them to heat their model up by arbitrary temperature of maybe 100 degrees centigrade or something. Heat your model up, because uh, some companies that I work for, this is part of their report. They want you to show 
that the constraints do not, you know, stress this thing. So the test for over constraint is just increase the temperature of all elements by 50 degrees centigrade or whatever. Oh, that's interesting. You're going to need to have the expansivity in there in your material deck because you're going to ask all these things to expand. Um, but, you know, old timers like me are looking for essentially free free expansion, that this thing can just pant just like it can in reality. So over-constrained, yes, we can come back and speak more about it. But the other thing where constraint goes wrong again is under constraint. So imagine this contact run that I've just made with 25 bodies in it. If one of those bodies can rotate about its own axis, like the gudgeon pin of a piston engine, or you know, you get yourself a V8 Buick or whatever it is with a free-floating gudgeon pins in the pistons, we can't have that situation in a, in a simulation. We need to tell our solver, look, those pins, you know, don't do a calculation for the next 20-odd hours where those pins just rotate, uh, processing round. Just, you know, that's not important to me. Um, I want the pistons to go up and down, and maybe you've got to use a spring element or some sort of dodge to stop that gudgeon pin from rotating in the piston. Because that is really, it's, uh, it's a rigid body rotation that, we don't really worry about it from an abacus analysis. But it might stop. Things like that will make a contact run much more difficult to get going if you've got any rigid bodies. Translation, there are six rigid bodies and all there, three translations and three rotations, of course. On anything with free movement, you're going to struggle. You know, it's a, it's, it makes that contact analysis much more difficult. Um, so really... The last 40 years has been about getting constraints about right. This area of adequate constraint does exist. You know, it, it's not a knife edge. To our left might be under constraint. Things can float around a bit. To our right might be over constraint, whereby sinisterly we've held something too tightly, too rigidly, and we're helping that component carry the stress because we weld the chairs we sat on we welded them to the floor instead of we've got contact on the floor or something so for me all i've been doing for the last 40 years is constraining things in a sensible manner that means my stresses come out very similar to reality and my fatigue life comes out right and my plastic strains come right you know everything else comes from that, that that's that's great advice i think that's great that's great Yes. Yeah, so in the very early days, it was lots of linear analysis. Um, you hardly ever had contact. You hardly had a, ever had plasticity. Most customers were designing things to stay within the elastic region. And that's what we did. You know, that's the first 10 years of my life, really. But then as time's gone on, then I've done more and more contact, more and more metal plasticity, all monotonic loading so i'm not worried about kinematic hardening and all these flash hardening models i've done fairly simple plasticity but really mostly for the oil and gas industry i suppose i've done wellheads i've done connectors i've done mooring systems one of my more complicated jobs well all of them have got complication because 
they need to have a you know a careful eye on convergence a careful eye on rigid bodies all this sort of stuff but about 18 months ago i made a a detailed model of a uh, of the cooling tower so this is a hyperbolic cooling tower say 380 odd foot high or something like that it might be two or three foot thick at the bottom at the base but it might be five or six inches thick in the majority of the thing you know they are very very slim it's the same sort of uh, aspect ratio as an eggshell really that you can imagine that an eggshell is what 20 thick and the whole thing is what two inches or whatever so these cooling towers are thin by definition and the shape helps them stay up first of all made them with an s4 element with the abacus s4 which is just a two-dimensional shell element, but realized we needed the fidelity of a sort of solid model. So instead of, you can't really go to a solid element like a C3D8 or something, or a tetrahedral element, but you go to something that Abacus calls a continuum shell. So I made this cooling tower model out of um, continuum shell elements, which, in other words, described the volume of the concrete. And then carefully from drawings, which went back to 1966, every piece of steel rebar was put in to in the right position with overlaps. Um, they can't tell you exactly where the overlaps are. You know, the construction is left, that, that is left to the uh, manufacturer. But I wrote programs to put the overlaps in haphazardly um, there were 200 odd miles in the hoop direction of steel and there was 125 miles or something like that in the meridional in the vertical direction the abacus did a lovely job of that because all i needed to say is look here's the solid this is the continuum shell here's all the steel these are just truss elements embed the truss elements inside the concrete and off i go I, okay i've got to describe some pressure loading on the outside that is um, of the right form of the wind that the wind varies with theta a lot the wind varies with height and the customer had a very simple question which was you know what wind speed will bring this thing down so it's a lovely simple question but the answer to that it took two or three months oh, i can't tell you what the answer is <laughs> but there was crack there are cracks in that shell in that concrete shell and we put splits into the uh, continuum shell model we sometimes we broke the rebar as well because we could see from photographs of the actual tower that the rebar had gone as well so we mimicked the broken rebar and so we made a perfect tower first to see what speed that would come down. And then we gradually introduced more and more defects into this thing to see what it did to the terminal wind speed of this thing. Interesting. Um, yeah. Oh, it's a lovely project. I presented that at conferences and people can't believe it because there's so many hundreds of miles of steel in that thing, all to scale, you know, all... Consistent with those drawings from 1966, oh, killed me. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, so that was nonlinear because the, obviously the concrete model is nonlinear. It could, we were saying 
without giving the actual values, we were saying something like, look, in tension, the concrete's good for maybe two megapascals, tension. But the, the concrete is good for, say, two megapascals in tension, but possibly carries 30 megapascals in compression, you know, a very unsymmetric tension compression behavior. That has to go into Abacus as well. And of course, you have to explain to Abacus something about damage as well. You can't just say that at two megapascals tension, this stuff can't carry any more load like you might do in a plasticity example. You have to start saying to Abacus, look, once you get up to two megapascals, you're going to inherit some damage now. And you're going to actually start to undo, if you like, you know, elements don't get deleted as such, but elements start to reduce the amount of load they're carrying to nothing. So that's really quite mathematically demanding that we, we damage the concrete elements. The steel elements have just got pretty simple plasticity in. I think I probably use perfect plasticity. So elastic up to say 350 or whatever the rebar is good for, 350 megapascals. And then hence on, that is the maximum stress we ever get to maybe. Uh, something like that. The, so the steel was easy, but the concrete very difficult. Uh, Post-processing very difficult as well. Um, you know, how do you judge when this thing comes down? Uh, I, I'm not, uh, that's it, I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Bob. If you are a designer or inventor looking for more information on simulation solutions, go to SOLIDWORKS.com simulation. Again, learn more at SOLIDWORKS.com simulation. We'll be back again soon with more great Born to Design podcast stories at SOLIDWORKS.com podcast or wherever podcasts are readily available. Until then, keep innovating. I really hope that what you heard today has inspired you. If you enjoyed it, head on over to iTunes, search for the Born Design podcast, and please leave us a five-star review so that this podcast will be recommended to more people, helping us expand the Born to Design community. Thank you.